This Lord's Day evening, we'll have two Scripture readings. Our first Scripture reading will come from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Our second Scripture reading from 2 Kings 18. And then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to questions 79 and 80. The first we'll turn to Numbers chapter 21 and begin our reading in verse 4. Reading the Word of God from Numbers chapter 21. From Mount Hor they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And then we'll turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. And this evening we're going to read to verse 8. This evening we're going to read from 2 Kings 18, verses 1 to verse 8. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Here ends the word of the Lord this evening. And then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechisms to question 79 and question 80, which can be found on page 233 in the Forms and Prayer book in the pew in front of you. That's question 79 and 80 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 233. Beginning in question 79, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood 
And Paul used the words of participation in Christ's body and blood. And together we respond, Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too His crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, He wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in His true body and blood. As surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in His remembrance, and that all of His suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. And then we turn to question 80. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ which He accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with His true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where He wants us to worship Him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. And we'll end our reading of the Catechism there this evening. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of what we normally do going Lord's Day by Lord's Day through the Heidelberg Catechism, I thought this evening it would be wise to give special attention to two questions, question 79 and 80 of the Heidelberg Catechism. One thing you may not know is that in between our worship services, I like to go home and listen to a virtual worship service for the edification of my own soul. And a few weeks ago, I was listening to my friend and colleague, Reverend Harry Zeckfeld in Strathroy, Ontario, who looked at just these two questions with his congregation, and I found it so helpful and so edifying that I thought I'd bring it to you. So credit goes to him. But the reason I'd like to pause and give more careful study of these questions Because as my professor in seminary, Cornelis Venema, notes, it is not an exaggeration to say that question 80 in the past and in the present has elicited the most criticism of any other question and answer in our catechism. Did you notice as we read question 80 that the Heidelberg seems to depart from its ironic and peaceful tone. It takes the gloves off, if you will, and aggressively takes a strike 
at the Roman Catholic Church when it calls the Mass a condemnable idolatry. The language of question 80 is strong. The language of question 80 is sharp. In fact, question 80 was so controversial that the Christian Reformed Churches, Synod in 2006, determined that this question no longer reflected the CRCNA's judgment on the Roman Catholic Church. And so, in their copy of the Catechism, the last two paragraphs where it begins with but the Mass teaches and ends with a condemnable idolatry have been relegated to a footnote in the Christian Reformed Church. Effectively removing it from the Catechism's teaching and removing it from the teaching of the church. But I want to put the question to you this evening, should it be so controversial? Because I think question 80 should receive a hearty amen from any evangelical Christian. Because all it's saying is that the sign of the Lord's Supper is the assurance of salvation through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. The sign is a sign of our full pardon. The forgiveness of sins in Christ's one and only sacrifice. That's the point of question 80. It's agreeing with Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. There's one way to heaven. And it's in the trusting and the embracing of Christ's finished work on the cross one time for all times. Is our catechism more controversial than the Word of God? But I want, what I want us to see this evening is that the signs of the Bible are given to assure us that salvation is through full pardon of sins in Christ's one sacrifice. That's all the signs. Are, all the signs of the Bible point us to the full pardon of our sins by Christ's one sacrifice. And the catechism is drawing to our attention that due to human sin, we can corrupt the sign. We can corrupt the sign with our human sins. I want to show you this in two points from the Word of God this evening, that a good sign is given and we see an example of a good sign corrupted. Let's look at our first point, the good sign given. We read our first Scripture reading in Numbers 21 that the people of Israel are en route to the promised land of God. Remember that it was due to Israel's complaining and their lack of trust in God in Numbers 13 and 14 they lacked trust in God for their provision. They, last God's tr- they lacked trust in God for their protection that they have now been wandering in the wilderness for 38 years. And God told them, again, Numbers 13 and 14, that no one from that generation save Caleb and Joshua would see the promised land. In Numbers 21, 
we're getting close to the end of that wandering. 38 years they have been in the desert. The last of that final generation is passing away. If you flip to Numbers 20, we read that Miriam dies in Numbers 20, verse 1. We read that Aaron dies in Numbers 20, verse 12. These are Moses' siblings. And even Moses himself is coming to the end of his life. But Numbers 21 marks a monumental moment. We read in Numbers 21, verse 3, that the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites and they devoted them in their cities to destruction. Don't miss the significance of verse 3. This is a foretaste of what's to come. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. God told Moses and or excuse me Abraham in Genesis 15, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. As far as you can see, I will give you this land. He will give them the land of Canaan, and they are on the precipice of receiving Abraham's inheritance. If you had a map, if we had a map this evening, Mount Hor would be here and Canaan would be here. It's just to the north. But we read in verse 4 that from Mount Hor they sent out by way of the Red Sea. The Red Sea is not south, folks. The, or excuse me, not north, folks. The Red Sea is directly south. If they want to get to the promised land, they're going in the wrong direction. But Moses is reminding the reader that just one chapter earlier in Numbers 20, when Moses requested that Israel would be able to walk through the land of Eden to get to the land of Canaan, Edom vehemently refused. They wouldn't let them pass through their territory. And so now Israel, we read in verse 4, has to take a long, dangerous route away from the land of promise down towards the Red Sea and then go up around Edom through the wilderness. And they were worried that they would fall prey to wild animals. It was a dangerous route. Whereas the route through Edom had a highway. They would have been shaded by the mountains and the pine trees. And so the people, we read in verse 4, they become impatient having to walk all the way around Edom. What if we fall prey to robbers and danger? What if we fall prey to wild animals? But what we read is that they don't fall prey to anything but sin. In fact, they commit a heinous sin against God. Notice how personal verse 5 is. And the people spoke against God. And they spoke against Moses. Their impatience, their discontentment at their situation is directed directly at God and directly at His mediator. 
Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Notice that you there. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This is, congregation, this is wicked, high-handed sin. Because they're pointing the finger at God for, and complaining that they're not in the promised land when they really should be pointing the finger at themselves. The reason they're not in the promised land is because of their sin. They refused to go up into the promised land after the spies gave their report in Numbers 13 and 14. And they're saying of God that they're questioning His character. When they say, why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're asking, has God brought us in the wilderness to kill them? They're accusing God of having it in for them. God is evil. God doesn't love His people. God is a murderer. As one author says, this is worse than giving the middle finger to God. Because you're questioning His good character. But you see, they also have contempt for His provision. They call the manna from heaven, the angel's food, worthless food. We hate this wretched bread. We loathe this worthless food. They are impatient and discontent in light of all that God has done for them. Well, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, our impatience can often mirror theirs. We can become impatient and discontent when we think we deserve better or we deserve more. We ask questions like, why doesn't God pull strings and give me a better life now? They're pilgrimaging to Canaan. We are on the road to heaven. Sometimes we ask, did God give us life just to make us miserable and to kill us? But God doesn't do that. He gives us life that we might trust in His Word and that we might look to Him in our times of trial. But this isn't what they're doing. And so we read, God sends fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that they died. Now the word among here, sent them among the people, can actually be translated as against. They were against God and Moses. God is against them. And so the sends the serpents. The serpents come in. They bite them. And they died. And I think the reason that they're called fiery serpents, it's talking about the effect of what happened. What it felt like after they were bit by a snake. And this is obviously judgment from God. We estimate that Israel, on their way out of the, into the land of Canaan, could have had upwards of over a million people. How many serpents would it take to bite hundreds of thousands of people? They would have been everywhere. 
biting, people dying. It was clear that the punishment is divine in nature. But notice that the people cry out to Moses, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord, there's that word again, and against you, Moses, pray to the Lord to take the serpents away from us, that God's discipline brings them to their senses, they sinned, they repent of their sins, and they recognize that they need something from God. What is that? That's faith. Even though they were sinful, even though they didn't deserve healing, they were looking to God through the mediator in faith. And you know what's really important about this passage? Is God hears their prayer. And He helps them. He helps Israel by giving them a sign. The Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. One question I've always had when I've heard this passage, even as a young boy. Why a snake? One time when I was a kid, we went down to Florida. And we went to an amusement park called Gatorland. They brought out all these snakes. And everybody screamed. Because they're ugly. They're fearsome. They can bite you and hurt you. They can constrict and maim you. Of all the animals in God's good kingdom, why a snake as a symbol of healing? Well, boys and girls, do you remember in Genesis 2 and 3? When Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden to eat of the fruit of the eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan, it says, appeared to them in the form of a snake. It was the form of death. It was the form what brought curse into this world. What brings death. What brings sin. What brings us all of life's problems. And it's the same thing plaguing Israel in, 20, in Numbers 21. That's what's lifted up on the pole. The symbol of death. Of curse. Of sin's entrance into this world. What God is reminding them of is our failure. Reminding us of our sinful ways and our sinful nature. But the snake is not alive. He doesn't put a real snake on the pole. He puts a bronze snake on the pole, which speaks then not to the living power of sin, but as we spoke about this morning, speaks of the broken power of sin. God is reminding them That the serpent, yes, did come. The serpent does bring the curse. He brings sin into this world. He brought us all damnation. But that's not the end of the story. But that in Genesis 3.15, God says to His people, He says to Adam and Eve, there will be the seed of the serpent, but from the woman will come a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. 
though his heel will be bruised. God is pointing Israel's eyes to that messianic promise of old. That there was going to come the seed of the woman who would put down the seed of the serpent. Who would crush its head. Who would reign over him. Who would have victory over the curse. Victory over sin. Victory over hell. You see that word pole there can even mean standard. This weekend, we are all celebrating our country. We celebrate our flag. Your flag, my flag. We celebrate it. And that when our brothers in arms went into battle, that's what they carried. In the same way, this was to be their standard. What they looked to. What they looked up to. They looked to the Lord's victory over sin. Victory over the serpent. Now, verse 8 tells us that they had to look at it in order to receive its blessing. That if you, wanted to be, if you wanted to live and you wanted to be healed, you had to fix your gaze on the serpent. You had to fix your gaze on the seed to come. That by faith, when they looked to the serpent, they looked through it to the Lord Jesus, they looked to His victory over sin and death and hell upon the cross, and His victory became their victory. His victory became their victory. Could God have healed these people without giving them the bronze, the sign of the bronze serpent? Of course, the answer is yes. It's not the serpent who brings healing from God. It's not magic. But it's God who brings healing through the sign that He attaches by the power of His Holy Spirit what it points to, to the sign, and when the people look at it, they are healed. To use the language of our catechism, it became an assurance for them. It's a sign, a pledge, that God will heal them by faith. In fact, if you flip with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, Jesus even speaks of this. He says when Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is asking, how do we know that you are the Son of God? One of the things that Jesus appeals to in John 3 verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That the Israelites were to look through the serpent. Not to the serpent. Look through it to the Son of Man who would be lifted Now, I know this evening it's not a one-to-one parallel, but do you see the similarities between the bronze serpent and the Lord's Supper today? The serpent was a good sign given to God to point our eyes to heaven. 
The serpent points us to the Savior. It points us to His victory by death. It points us to the cross. And that while the people looked at the serpent, the Holy Spirit communicated. He gave the benefits of all the suffering and obedience of Christ to His servants. In the same way, says the Catechism in question 79, when we look to Jesus by faith in the sacrament, the Holy Spirit communicates, gives to us all of Christ and His benefits are ours by faith. The good sign points to Christ. It points to Jesus. It points to His victory. But good things without God become curses. Good things without God become curses. Serpents had a prominent place in the worship of the ancient Near Eastern church. Or ancient religion, pagan religions I should say. We have records of Babylonian texts referring to the worship of serpents. They believed that serpents had both a power of fertility to help women bear children, and also healing properties. And so in our second point, we turn to 2 Kings 18, where we see that over the passage of time, Judah took God's sign, they took the bronze serpent, which was the sign of healing by faith in the Messiah to come, and fell into that common Near Eastern way of thinking. And they worshipped the bronze snake. They began to see the sign as God itself. They began to see the sign as God itself. And so in 2 Kings 18, we have a wonderful story. One of the one of my personal favorite stories of the kings of the Old Testament, the story of Hezekiah. And we read in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to David, his father had done. Hezekiah is second only to David in the history of the kings for his love for God, his love of God's house, and his love of God's word. And the Word of God expressly condemns idolatry. One of the things I want to bring to your attention here is verse 6. He did not depart from following Him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Boys and girls, what does the first commandment say? You shall have no other gods before Me. And I like the way Matthew Henry puts it about Hezekiah. He says that God's Word made Hezekiah a zealous reformer. Hezekiah becomes a reformer. He wanted people to go back to the true worship of the Lord as prescribed in the Word of God. And so we read, look with me at verse 4, he goes to the high places 
a place where people would go to worship their idols because they thought if they were closer to God on top of a hill or a mountain that their gods might be able to hear them. And we read in verse 4, He removes them. He then goes to the pillars. These would be sacred stones that the Canaanites would set in the ground where they would worship their pagan gods. And we read, He removes them. He goes to the Asherah, which would have been poles that they would have set up dedicated to the Canaanite god Asherah. And we read, He cuts them down. And then look at verse 4. And He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. The sign of healing. The sign of Jesus' victory over Satan is included in the list of idols of Hezekiah's day. Think about what the priests would have felt. What are you doing, King Hezekiah? Don't you know how valuable this is? How valuable would this have been historically, religiously, sacramentally, symbolically? And it says he takes the bronze serpent and he shatters it on the ground. He shatters it because good things without God becomes curse, or good things without God become curses. He was zealous for the worship of God. And doesn't this teach us how zealous we need to be for the worship of God, congregation? Is Judah took God's wonderful symbol of grace. They took God's wonderful symbol of healing. They took that wonderful symbol of the victory of the Messiah and they turned it into an idol. Worshipping the serpent rather than the victory that the serpent pointed them towards. Idolatry. That's idolatry. What might do us well at this moment then to define what idolatry is. Our catechism Elsewhere says idolatry is putting anything alongside of or in the place of God. They're looking to the serpent as if it is God. Trusting in the serpent. Looking to it for, its, for, for their fertility. Looking to it for its healing. Giving what belonged to God to a piece of metal. We can make idols of anything. As human beings, our hearts, our hearts, says John Calvin, are idol factories. We love to put things alongside of in the place of God. As men, one of our greatest temptations is to make our work an idol. We make our children an idol. We can make our families an idol. We can even make the church an idol. And this is telling us that they took something good, something godly, something sacred... And they were able to make it an idol. And so it's by God's grace that Hezekiah had a reformation. And by God's grace, Hezekiah's reformation is not the first reformation, and nor is it the last. You remember in 1512, 
God stirred up the heart of Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation, to go back to the Word of God alone that teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And like Hezekiah, Martin Luther and the Reformers said, we cannot participate in the Mass because the Roman Catholic Mass is idolatry. So what is the Mass? In the ancient church, the liturgy was divided into two sections. The first section was what's called the Liturgy of the Word. All people were permitted to attend the Liturgy of the Word. But before the second part of the liturgy, the priest would say in Latin, and excuse me, my Latin is very rusty, ite mise est. Which means you are dismissed. And the second part of the liturgy was only for those who were baptized and could receive the Eucharist. And in that second part, which is called the service of the table, they would receive the Eucharist. But that word Mass comes from Mise. Now last week we spoke at length that the heart of the Mass is the belief that the real and substantial body of Jesus Christ is present in the bread and the wine. The Catholics believe that the elements, the bread and the wine, are transubstantiated, trans meaning uh, change, substantia meaning substance, that they, when they're consecrated by the priest, the bread and wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. The Catechism says what this means is that the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic tradition is also thought to be a sacrifice. The Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered to them daily by the priest. That in the breaking of the bread, in the consuming, the crunching of the bread, Christ's offering is perpetuated. His sacrifice on the cross is repeated. And this isn't my opinion on the matter or the Catechism's opinion, but this is explicitly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Now this is going to be one of the only times you ever hear me read from the Council of Trent. A great Roman Catholic synod. But they explicitly teach it here. They say these words, try to listen closely, for as much as in the divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, that same Christ is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner though for, uh, who once offered Himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The Holy Synod teaches that this is a truly propitiatory and that by means thereof this is effected. That we obtain mercy and find grace if we draw nigh to God, contrite and patient, with sincere heart and upright faith, with fear and reverence. For the Lord grants forgiveness of sins and even heinous crimes through it. 
I know it can be hard to understand sometimes, but the Catholic Church is explicitly saying that taking and eating the Eucharist once consecrated by a priest is propitiatory. It forgives your sins. And that the Mass represents, not just symbolically, but actually the atoning death of Christ. In the Roman Catholic view, the sacrament is an integral component of Christ's continual atonement, which is repeated and represented in the Mass. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, Christ's sacrifice is ever-present. It's perpetuated. It's continued. It goes on. But what did we read this morning from Romans 6? That Christ died one time for all times. We read in Romans 6, verses 8 and 9, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over Him. He died to sin once for all. He made one sacrifice for all the sins of His people. To speak of Christ's sacrifice as ever-present, as perpetual throughout the ages, is nothing less than a denial of the finished work of Christ. Isn't that logical? If it's perpetual, it's not finished. And it needs to be perpetual, they say, for our propitiation and forgiveness of sins. Now, some people get a little upset with the word idolatry here in question 80 of the Catechism. Can we use the word idolatry when we're speaking about the Roman Catholic Mass? Well, the Catechism brings to our attention, though, is that if Christ is truly and physically present in that host, in that wafer, then it must be worshipped. It teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form and bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Is idolatry the wrong word here? Well, it's interesting that Roman Catholics themselves agree that if Christ is present in the Mass, then it must be worshipped. But if it's not, it's idolatry. The Roman Catholics themselves say this. Uh, Kimberly Hahn, who was raised Protestant, converted to be a Roman Catholic, says this, If one should kneel before a king today, how much more before the king of kings? But I continue to ruminate, she says, what if it's not the real body and blood of Jesus. If it's not Jesus in the elements, then what they are doing is a gross idolatry. Catholic apologists are saying that if Jesus is not physically present in the elements, it's a gross idolatry. It's not safe for us to bow. And so in theory, they agree with the catechism. If Christ isn't there, 
You shouldn't worship it. And all the catechism is saying is that we need to be consistent. If Christ is not in the host, we may not bow to it. And the Lord's Supper was given not so that we could have the propitiatory forgiveness of sins in the act of eating, but it's given to us in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That the same person who died upon the cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago is not sacrificed on the altar again. And to bow to anything, whether it's a bronze serpent or whether it's a host, is idolatry. The Lord's Supper is not God itself. The Lord's Supper, like the serpent of old, is to point us to God and His victory upon the cross. Why do the Reformed not have an altar? Our altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where His blood was poured out. Why do we not practice sacrifices? Because we offer to God the sacrifice of our praise and our lives in service to Him. The Word of God, I think, compels us to the conclusion that the, Heidel, the Heidel, that the Heidelberg Catechism expounds for us that the Roman Catholic Mass is mistaken. It attributes too much to the sign. And that we need to look to Christ for the salvation of our souls and for the forgiveness of all our sins. His one sacrifice is the grounds for all of our pardon. Next week, we'll plan to finish our studies on the sacraments by concluding with Lord's Day 30. The Lord willing, may God give us the grace to believe it. Amen. Would you pray with me this evening? God, our Father, we thank You that our ultimate and final and eternal peace rests in Christ Jesus the Lord. And we thank You that You have given Your one Son as the final sacrifice for all of our sins. And that in Him upon the cross is perfect atonement. May You be praised for this great work that You have done. Help us, Lord, to look through the sign to the victory of Christ upon the cross where He has purchased and bought a perfect salvation for us. So perfect and so free. We pray, Lord, that You would bless all these words to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.